Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop event podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On April 4th, 2019, Kali Fajardo Anstein joined us to discuss her short story collection, Sabrina and Karina. On April 5th, Kali read from her collection, followed by a Q&A with Stephen Dunn. Hi, I'm Manuel Aragon, Operations Manager at Lighthouse Writers Workshop. I'm here with Kali Fajardo Anstein to discuss her new short story collection, Sabrina and Karina. Tell us about your Lighthouse story. When, when did your involvement with Lighthouse begin? Sure, yeah, I'd love to. So I was a bookseller at Westside Books from the time I was 15, off and on until I was 30. And when I first started working there, uh, I knew I wanted to be a writer, and I was sort of taking creative, creative writing classes the way that a high schooler can, which is not very efficiently. <laughs> and um, by the time I got into college, I was really looking for a way to get involved in the local literary community. And I saw flyers for Lighthouse posted inside Westside Books. And these flyers were dropped off often, and they, they were author talks, they were workshops. And I would look at these flyers, and I was like, I don't know, it seems like maybe, maybe this isn't for me. Um, but eventually, I asked my father if I could have um, a gift of the intro to the novel class as part of my birthday present that year. And I was 19, and he said, yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I was really delighted. And I signed up, and I started taking the class, and it was the first time that I had ever been in a workshop experience. And so it was at the old, um, the old location. I know there's been several. Uh, this was at the old location, and I would just go there once a week. And I took a class with Rebecca Berg, and there were people in, there were students in my class from all walks of life, from different backgrounds. And it got me writing what would later become um, the first, you know, the first pages of my novel in progress that will be published next year. So you started on your novel there. Yeah. Um, what got you? What got you hooked on short stories? Oh, sure, yeah. And um, people are kind of confused. They're like, "Why did you started a novel before you started writing short stories, and now you have a novel coming out too?" Uh, yeah. So I. I had this sort of like inherited family story about my ancestors coming up from Southern Colorado into Denver in the 1920s and 1930s. And I knew that I wanted to do something with this story and it's sort of, a, it's an epic large canvas. And it's only something that I could tell in novel form. But when I was in my early 20s and my late teens, my craft level was nowhere near where it needed to be in order to write a novel. So when I got into my MFA program at the University of Wyoming, Everybody was being encouraged to write short stories, and I had been doing that as an undergrad, but it was really there where I was working with writers like Joy Williams and Brad Watson and Allison Hagee, where they said, hey, we, know, we think you're actually also a short story writer. You seem pretty talented at this. And I fell in love with the form, and I think there are reasons I fell in love with it. Um, one, just practicality of attention span. I can read a short story in an evening, and I can reread it over and over and over again. And that's something that I, I did a lot of when I was in graduate school to teach myself craft in a way. Um, and novels, it takes a lot of effort to read them over and over and over again. You know, some short stories I've read at least 20 times. So it's kind of hard to do that with a full length novel. Um, another reason I'm really drawn to the short form is it, the way that it mirrors humor and jokes. I love that it has sort of these flips and these turns that are unexpected. And I'm a, you know, I'm a big joke teller. I love laughing. I love to hear people tell jokes at bars and things like that. So 
in, in a way it was a natural fit. But another main reason that I love the short story form is because I come from a family of oral storytellers. Um, these are indigenous Chicano people from the Southwest and that's how we chronicled our life was through oral storytelling. And you're not really gonna tell your family a full novel length story. You're mostly gonna tell snippets of stories and the short story far, form in literature really resembles that to me um, when I actually sat down and started writing the stories. So when you, so you started working on your short stories and how, how long ago was that? Yeah, it started a long time ago. So my first published story was in 2010 with Bellevue Literary Review. That was the story Remedies. It's about uh, a little girl named Clarissa and she lives with her mom over in North Glen and they have a townhouse and every weekend she comes and picks up her half brother over on Grant Street and he ends up giving her lice every single time they pick him up. So the story is about uh, natural remedies, how you get rid of lice, but it's also about choices we make in our past and how they can continue to haunt us in our futures. Um, that story came out just sort of naturally for me. I was thinking a lot about the different kinds of relationships I have in my own family, um, the herbal healing that took place with my great-grandmother, and also the spaces in that story were just these these homes that loomed large in my imagination. The home of the great-grandmother in that, that story, Remedies, is the home of my great-grandmother over on Tremont Court, or place, uh, over on Tremont. Um, and also, like, every time I drive down Grant Street and I see this one particular red awning, I know that that's, the, that's where her little brother lives in Remedies. So I think, yeah, I started writing those stories. It was probably around 2009, 2008. And you know, I, start, I started getting it polished up, and by 2010, I was able to get it published. But it, as you can see, my, my first collection is not coming out until 2019, so there's a, quite a bit of time in between there. Yeah, that, and it seems like that seems, that's the process for short stories, that you work on them over a long span of time and then build your collection. And just as we, we talk about Sabrina and Karina, and what, one of the things I was reading it, and also being a Chicano from Denver, it felt really personal to me. There were these locations that I could identify that no longer exist, mm -hmm. as well as people that feel a lot like my own family, who in some ways also, you know, they don't exist in the same neighborhood, they don't exist in the, uh, or, or they've passed. And, and I think, so it got me thinking about this, that, really most of the stories that tend to have these kind of dual narratives around loss yeah. in the book. And I, you know, you, you're talking about remedies and these choices that have led to Clarissa having a half brother. Yeah. But then also through, throughout that they're trying to get rid of lice. And, and so think, thinking of that theme of loss, um, was it something that you really, that just sort of organically came out of your work or were you very thoughtful about capturing that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think um, death is a big part of my work and I, you know, that it's just something that sort of showed up organically. I've always been drawn to these darker energies, um, but it's the reason behind that, I've, I've started to sort of like analyze it, like where is this coming from? And I think a lot of it's cultural. Um, you know, my family, 
my family is, they're incredibly mixed people, but everybody, for the most part, was either Jewish or Catholic. So there's a lot of death in both those cultures. But I do, I remember going to Mass and, like, staring up at the crucifix and seeing, like, a bloodied Christ on the cross, and, like, from the time I was a baby. So these are the kinds of things, these are the images that were around me constantly my entire life. But also, I come from an enormous Wild West Chicano family where there was an incredible amount of loss. Um, and the reason for this kind of loss, um, people were getting murdered, people were dying of AIDS, um, people passed, you know, just from natural causes. And when you have a large family, you start going to funerals very young, and you start seeing bodies, and you start being around this kind of thing. Um, so I, I really want to talk about how, you know, life is very beautiful, and it can be this robust, wonderful thing, but it's also, at the same time, we all die. And I think that really comes out in my work, that it's... It's always, it's always about duality with me. You know, I have these characters like Sabrina and Karina who are playing off of each other, uh, but the same way life and death and light and dark are always playing off each other. So you'll see that throughout the stories. Um, for example, in the story Galapago, uh, the older woman that lives in this home on Galapago, Perla, Perla ends up murdering a young man that breaks into her home. And I think there's a line in there where she says that even in her old age, she wanted to live more than die. And I really wanted to examine what that would be like for a woman at the end of her life to take a young man's life that has broken into her home. So yeah, it's something that's just, it runs throughout my entire book. And I also feel like the experience of going through gentrification in Denver is, is loss. I mean, it is a constant act of grieving for me to walk around the city and see everything that I knew and loved from my childhood and my adolescence be plowed over and completely changed. So yeah, I'm, I deal with death on a daily basis. I think going, going along with that, you know, you're talking about your family and how a lot of these stories just capture really personal places and locations. And so what, what, what does your family think of your writing or your book? <laughs> Uh, one of my sisters, she, I have five sisters and one brother, so I, I have like a pretty big um, built-in readership, <laughs> I would say. Um, but one of my sisters, she read my book when it first came out in galley form, and she said she forgot it was mine, and she read it really quickly within like two days. And I thought that was the highest compliment I could receive, because it's like, get my sister out of here, I just want to read this book. So they, they're super supportive. My earliest readers, I have two twin sisters who are now 22 years old, and when they were like 12 and 13 years old, they were reading my drafts for me and giving me feedback. And a lot of my characters were around their age at that time. So it was super helpful. Um, my mother did, like, has a very short attention span, but she reads the stories. She brags about the story. If you ever meet her, she will tell you about my book. Um, but yeah, my, my, and my father's been incredibly supportive too. He, he's really the one that introduced me to literature at an early age. And it's just, I think they're, they're so proud that I was able to create something like this. Uh, there has been, you know, there, now that I'm doing interviews and things like that, my family has talked to me a little bit about how open I am. I'm a very open person. I will talk about a lot of the things I've experienced. So I think I'm learning to walk that line between when are you giving away too much um, of your family histories and your personal stories. Um, I, wanna, I wanna be able to help other people with my personal stories, but I also don't wanna hurt people by sharing too much. So as you mentioned your sisters, I wanted to move on to this, that the book is a really, I think it's a really complex look at Chicano women of all ages. And as I, I, as I read it, I was struck, I, I don't think I've ever I've come across a collection that encompasses 
the especially the like south southwestern Chicana experience in terms of age, in terms of socioeconomic diversity, and just um, especially, it's not an immigrant's tale. Yeah. And what was it important for you? I know you mentioned your family is from Colorado. Was it important for you to really try to capture the authenticity, the um, just your connectedness to Colorado and northern yeah. New Mexico? Yeah. So I think I started writing these stories in earnest, like in a serious mode when I had first moved away from Denver. And that was um, in 20 or in 2010, I was living in San Diego and I was experiencing a great deal of homesickness. And it was around that time I would call my Auntie Lucy. She was like 89 years old and she still lived in her home on Gallopago. And I would just complain and complain about being in California. <clears throat> she would say, you don't belong in that country. That country's so far away. You know, and the, she was like, she came from this ancient people that had been in the Southwest since recorded history. So the idea of me being somewhere like San Diego was so hard for her to grasp. Uh, and I, I think around that time, that's when I started to realize that I, I was deeply connected to my land and the place that I came from. And it was important for me to write stories that situated the reader in the land the way that I felt it growing up. Um, it's not an immigrant's tale because I'm not an immigrant and my parents weren't immigrants and my grandparents weren't immigrants and like, my, well, one of my great-grandfathers, he came from the Philippines, Alfonso. But <laughs> for the most part, my family, they're descendants of Pueblo Native Americans from the Picaris Pueblo. So it's, it was a really odd space to be in as a Latina writer because a lot of the books I was reading did not have a narrative that took, looked, at, looked at people who were indigenous to the Southwest, who over a period of time had transferred into other cultures. And it was important to me that I was able to showcase my people with as much authenticity and heart as possible because frankly, I felt like I needed to do this for us because we didn't really have a book in literature like this. So as you talk about those stories and your connection to the short stories and connection to your own family, uh, do you have a favorite story from the collection? You know, <clears throat> they're my kids, so I don't have a favorite kid. Um, <laughs> I, I love them all equally, and I love them for different reasons. Uh, somebody asked, what, what, what do you think I should start with when I'm reading your work? And I said, you should start with the first story, because I ordered it that way, because I want you to be introduced to the world uh, through the voice. That story is Sugar Babies, and it opens with this sort of folkloric collective voice in southern Colorado. It's like the village voice. And I want people to enter my stories as if they're sitting around a campfire and they know that they're in for a treat. You're about to hear some storytelling. So yeah, I'd say Sugar Babies, just because it leads off the collection. And I think it's a, a great gateway into the world of, of these stories. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that really struck me about Sugar Babies is it is and you talked about being a joke person. It's funny, but also deeply serious. Yeah. And while I, I had a friend who used to say that the Latino experience is all about um, sorrow and laughter. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. stories that are mixed with that too. And I, I, as I read that, I was like, I'm in, I'm all into this. Aww. And so, um, just thinking, you know, you talked about it, it starts off, we're in south, southwest Colorado, and location is just really central to your stories. Mm -hmm. Did you, did you find you had to do any research that 
uh, for your work. I, I know you said you've lived in some of these places. They're kind of ingrained in your soul. But what, what sort of research did you have to go through in terms of location, in terms of characters, in terms of... Definitely. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. My, my life sometimes takes these like coincidental turns that end up being like meant to be. So I was living in Key West, Florida, and I had applied for a job years earlier at Fort Lewis College, and a lot of my work is set in that region because that's where my ancestors were from, but I did not grow up there. I had never lived there. I had just visited. Um, and I got a call while I was in Key West, and it was like, hey, we would like to hire you for the writing program to teach in the writing program here. So I packed up my car, and I drove all the way back to Colorado, and I went down with my mother to look for an apartment, and we went on a hike, and like the first thing that happened while we were hiking is these two beautiful eagles like swooped down from the sky and like flew over my shoulders. <laughs> and I am, um, my mom like started crying. She's like, You're being welcomed home. This is so phenomenal. This is so beautiful. This is where you're meant to be. And I like, I started crying, but I didn't want her to see me being actually interested in this. So I turned around and hid my face. Um, but I, I ended up living then in, in the Four Corners region where a lot of my work is set. And while I was there, I mean, I would just drive to all kinds of different museums. I would visit the archives there. I would visit tribal lands. Um, and I got intimately acquainted with the landscape in a way that before it was just existing in the realm of imagination. So it really helped me populate my fictional town, Sewarita, which shows up not only in my short story collection, but also in my novel. Um, when it comes to the kinds of research I had to do for the stories set in Denver, there were times I would be working on the edits for a story. Uh, I mentioned remedies being set on Grant Street. I would just get in my car and I would drive to the apartment that I was basing the story off of and I would sit in the parking lot and I would take notes about how I felt and what it looked like. Um, there's also a story called Cheeseman Park. Um, that's probably one of the darker stories in the collection. That's about a woman who's fleeing domestic violence in California and she comes back home to stay with her mother who is herself a survivor of domestic violence and she lives on Cheeseman Park. When I was writing that story, I drove actually to the apartment area that I imagined it was and I walked around Cheeseman at night and I just wanted to have a feeling of what the, the climactic scene felt like. Um, I, I have to go out into the field, so to speak. I have to touch things, I have to be around voices, I have to hear people talk. Um, so I'm very much a hands-on researcher. When it comes to my historical work, one of the stories, Sisters, is actually set in the 1950s in the north side, Denver. And in Sisters, I looked up cold cases of murdered girls in Colorado from that time period. And what I was looking for is I was looking for women who had Spanish last names. And I found there was an abundance of these girls that had been murdered and no one had ever looked into their cases. So I was pulling details from those cases to populate my story in a way. And I also feel like when you do research, you're honoring the lives of the people in the past and you're laying the groundwork for more historical um, archiving to be done in the future. Let's see, so in terms of in terms of your writing, and especially within short story, who, who are your influences? And yeah, I love talking about my influences because I love talking about books. 
And I think that all writers should read as much as possible. So I am, my taste in literature is incredibly wide ranging because I sold books at Westside Books for so long. And I would have these customers come in and not everybody was reading literary short fiction. I mean, people were reading enormous amounts of information, just books on anything you can imagine. So a lot of my influences, they're pretty, they're pretty wide ranging, but I'd say the writer that really like set it all off for me is Sandra Cisneros. I still remember being in 10th grade and getting House on Mango Street for the first time in my English class. And I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. Like I, I, I almost felt like I couldn't believe that this, this book hadn't been shown to me before. I should have been given it like my 10th birthday, you know. Um, every Latina should get a House on Mango Street copy on her 10th birthday. <laughs> but uh, my other influences would be Edward P. Jones, his, his short story collection, Lost in the City, which takes a look at African Americans in Washington, DC. It really laid the groundwork for me to envision a book about Chicanas in Denver. I wanted to be as real as possible. I wanted to depict these characters through a form of naturalism. And that, that comes from Jones. Uh, I'm also hugely influenced by Flannery O'Connor and her dark sensibility, the way that she tries to uncover truth in her fiction. And I, I like that her fiction is difficult and it's not for everybody. Um, I'm also super interested in Catherine Ann Porter's work. Catherine Ann Porter, not very many people know that her novella, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, is set in Denver during the influenza pandemic in 1918. And that novella, I remember reading that in my apartment in Wyoming and just crying and crying. And I think I was, I think I was crying because it's incredibly sad and it's beautiful. It's this sort of, you have to read it to find out. But um, I also was crying because I hadn't seen Denver created on the page in that way before. And I thought, okay, if she can do this, I can do it. So along those lines, you have your influences. And so what, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading so many different things. <laughs> um, I just finished up the short story collection, Half Gods by Akhil Kumarasari. And that is just a phenomenal collection. Akhil writes with such a high level of craft. Her prose is so incredibly tight. Um, the characters are lovable and strange. Um, I finished up Stephen Dunn's Water and Power. I think that's a fascinating look at the novel. He really plays ar around with form. Um, that book takes a look at a military service from the perspective of an African-American male. And I think that that's something that's not as common when we talk about the military experience. And also just, we need to have more books um, from veterans coming out. Um, I read a lot of poetry too. That's something that's like a secret of mine, like a fiction writer secret. If you really want to write startling, beautiful prose, you should read the poets. I just finished up Keith S. Wilson's uh, debut collection, and it's coming out from Copper Canyon Press in May. Um, and he just he writes really interesting poems about race and his place. And yeah, I just I read pretty voraciously, and I try I try to keep my taste as wide as possible. So moving on, you're, so you said every writer should be a voracious reader. Yeah, and hopefully. <laughs> yeah, and, and then, so there's one piece of your writing process. What, what's, what's the rest of your writing process look like? It's different um, depending on each project. For the short stories, what tends to happen, for the writing of this book, 
what tended to happen is I would just be walking around living my life and some event would trigger the idea for an entire narrative. So for Sabrina and Karina, I was getting my hair done by a friend of mine and we went outside for a smoke break and there was another stylist who was next to us and she said that on the weekend she was making extra income by doing makeup for bodies at the morgue. And as soon as I heard that, it was like, it's on, I have the whole story and I went home and I started writing like frantically. Uh, the same thing kind of happened with Sugar Babies. I went to an artist talk, and I don't remember who the artist was or even what his art was like or what he was talking about, but he told a story about an archaeological dig site that occurred in his hometown when he was a little boy. And as soon as he mentioned that story, I could see the dig site from Sugar Babies. It's almost as if something like cracks it open for me, and there it is. But the novel's different. Uh, with the novel, I have to be much more tempered. I have to create uh, actual word quotas for myself and make sure that I'm being consistent and staying on top of it. And I think in some ways, the short story form for me is just like this explosive act of creativity, and the novel is a much more planned and rational act of creativity. I'm gonna cough really hard real quick, so. <coughs> <coughs> So moving from the craft to look, walk us through your path to getting Sabrina and Karina published. Sure. Um, so my path is like, it's <laughs> it's kind of interesting because I, I think everyone's path is different. Everyone always says like, oh, mine was super unique. But I, I really do think mine was sort of strange. <laughs> so I... Um, I had been told when I was in graduate school from different professors that I could probably get a literary agent for my stories. And I, you know, I don't come from a background where I know literary agents or even know how to get a hold of one. Um, so I ended up, I was with an agent really briefly while I was in graduate school and it didn't work out and they wanted a novel. Everybody always wants a novel. And I started working on a novel and I, and, you know, years went by and I was querying agents and nothing was really happening for me in that way. And in 2012, I reached out to a mentor of mine and I said, I'm having a lot of problems finding an agent. And he, he helped me. He said, okay, this never has worked before in the past, but I'm gonna actually see if my agent's interested, but don't get your hopes up, it never works. Um, it did work, but my books were not quite ready. And I think this is sort of the interesting part of my path. I first, started talking to my agent in 2013, and we didn't make a sale until 2017. And I think a lot of people, they, they go out and they find an agent as soon as they have a manuscript ready, and then they shop it, and the whole process could be done within like five months. Um, but for me, it was years and years. So the process to getting Sabrina and Karina published is, you know, I was just working on these stories, and I'd send them out to magazines and see if I could get them published, and sometimes people said yes, but often they said no. and while that was happening, I was working on the novel, and my agent was, would actually read my novel chapters, give me feedback, and then I would continue and go forward. So what ended up happening in 2017, we both felt like the books had gotten to a point where they were ready to go out and show the market, and my agent said, hey, there's this editor at One World named Nicole Counts, and I think that she'd be the perfect person for this book. And so we didn't go out to the wider, the world of publishing. We went directly to One World, we did an exclusive, 
and I had this really wonderful dream while I was visiting Alaska. I could like see my editor in her office in this glass high rise in New York City. And I just, I had this feeling, I was like, I know they're gonna take it, they're gonna buy these books. And sure enough, they did, and it was like the happiest day of my life, and I couldn't believe it. And then it took about, I think, two years to get to the point where it's coming out. And we just worked, you know, we worked on edits, and it's it's just been a really wonderful experience, and I'm so grateful to be on an imprint like One World. So yesterday was your publication day. So yeah. happy pub day. <laughs> uh, what, what, what's it like to go into the bookstore where you used to work and buy your debut book? Uh, it was really surreal. So the, it's yesterday I went on like a local tour of the bookstores around town. I went to Tower to Cover, our book bar, and Westside Books. And these are all bookstores that are emotionally very special to me. Uh, but walking into Westside Books, where I had been selling books since you know the time I was a young teenager, it just it kind of felt like I was a different person. Like I felt like the old collie was still somewhere in the stack selling people books, and I was walking by as a stranger. Um, I kind it was just sort of this like this strange experience where I had to realize like my life has changed now. <laughs> like I'm not a bookseller um, at this moment, and I you know it'd be cool to be a bookseller again while this is happening. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's just it's a surreal, wonderful, special thing, and. I'm so honored that it happened for me while I'm in Denver. You know, I've lived all over, and if this day would have come in another location, it wouldn't have been as special. You you had th this day that was really exciting. Yeah. Um, we also know the reality of being a writer is that you have another project that you're usually working on while Project A comes out, and so. What, what, what are you currently working on? Yeah, so I'm currently working on my novel, Woman of Light, which One World will publish in either 2020 or early 2021. And Woman of Light is sort of an, I wouldn't use this term lightly, but I think it is an epic. It's like an epic story set between 1875 and 1934 in Denver. And it follows the lives of um Mexican-Americans of indigenous descent. I, I, they wouldn't have called themselves Chicanos, and I don't know if they would have, they would have called themselves Spanish, probably. Um, but it follows the lives of my ancestors when they migrated north from, um, from the San Luis Valley. And there's Wild West shows, uh, there's snake charming, tea leaf reading, um, dance halls, and it also looks at the institutional power of the, K the KKK in Denver during the 1920s. So it's a, it's a big book with a lot of historical research that goes into it. And that's kind of what I've, you know, I've been doing is I give myself you know, these weeks where I'll just write and write on the novel. And then if I feel like I'm running out of steam, I'll go and I'll research and research and research and sort of like pick myself back up that way. Um, it's almost finished. It's almost ready to go out to my editor and see what she thinks of it. But yeah, it has been interesting. I, I in order to, in order to get this two book deal, I had to pretty much write a full novel. So it has been interesting to take a break from the novel and focus on promoting the short stories, especially when some of these I wrote in 2010. So it's kind of like going back and revisiting a person I used to be that I still am in this underlying way. Um, and with the novel, I just it's really nice to have something to look forward to and to have something that's like almost ready to go that people will be able to read from me next. So you said it's really, it's a really special time for you to be in Denver with 
the launch of the book. Do you have any, any events coming up to promote the book or to celebrate with the community? Yeah, I actually have my big launch party at Lighthouse on Friday, April 5th at 6.30 p.m. Um, I'm really excited. I'm going to be in conversation with my good friend, the writer Stephen Dunn. Uh, and I just, I'm, it's going to be phenomenal to be able to celebrate my book being released at Lighthouse, you know, the place where I started taking classes when I was a teenager. So I'm, I'm super excited and I can't wait to see all my friends and family and like show up for this book. And it's just, it's, it's unbelievable I get to have this kind of party. Uh, and I, I will have an event at Tattered Cover in late May. I will have an event at Book Bar coming up as well. And I'm also going on a tour throughout the country. So I'll be visiting San Antonio, Minneapolis, San Francisco. And I have been invited to read at the New York Public Library. So I'll be doing that on April 22nd with my good friend, Ivelisse Rodriguez, who right now is a finalist for the Penn Faulkner. So there's a lot going on, a lot of things coming up. And I'm just, I'm really happy that the center of my whole universe gets to be Denver. And I get a launch here. And all the, the bookstores in town have been so supportive. It's, it's overwhelming, actually. They're, they're that supportive. Well, Kali, thank you so much for joining us. And we're really excited about your book coming out and to celebrate with you this Friday. Thank you so much, Manuel. And I am so happy to be able to celebrate at Lighthouse. I want to welcome you here to Lighthouse Writers Workshop. I'm Andrea Dupree. I'm the program director here. My voice is going in and out. Sorry about that. Um, and you are here to celebrate the debut book of the lovely and talented Kali Fajardo Enstein. And by Anstein, I meant Anstein. You know how you say something in your head a lot and you don't really check it out? I kind of did that. Sorry, Kali. You know I love you. <laughs> um, anyway, we are so thrilled to have Kali here. I think um, if you've seen the news lately or opened a Westward or a 5280 or a Denver Post or turned on your TV or walked down the street, you've probably heard about Kali. Uh, she... We first met her when she was just out of high school, I think, or just 19 or... And I, I keep hearing these stories about how um, she was told by an English teacher or something, oh, you're just give up now or something like that. I mean, I read that on the, on the interweb somewhere. And that just shocked me because she started coming here and she was taking an intro to novel workshop. And within like three weeks, I heard from her instructor and she said, we have to have a reading with Kali Annett featured because she is so phenomenal. And she was the youngest person that was ever part of this reading series we did called The Draft. Um, she filled the house. She brought the house down. Everybody looked at each other. We were like, okay, we've got a winner here. And it was so true. She went off to UW and then why, you went to Florida. I meant that. Metro State, so it was Lighthouse, Metro State, UW, and then off to the rest of America and took over, basically took names, and we have just been hearing all the great stuff ever since. When she came back to Denver, we were so thrilled because she almost immediately, within a few months, started teaching here at Lighthouse, 
the best teachers at Lighthouse, no offense to the ones who never took workshops here, but are the people who've been in the workshops because they just know exactly the magic that can happen. And we started hearing from the very beginning that we had a very, very special uh, teacher on our hands. So we hope to keep her here forever. Whatever you can do to keep Kali in Denver, the world wants her. We have to hold on tight. We're so excited. We're gonna hear a read right now. Kali Fajardo and Steen. This is so exciting. I didn't think anyone was going to come to my party. <laughs> I have, you know, trauma from like seventh grade. Um, so I, I'm just so honored to be able to launch my book, Sabrina and Karina, here in Denver, where I'm from. I was gone for quite a bit of time, and when I came back, that's when everything started happening for me in my writing. And some people believe in coincidences, but I don't. I believe it was fate, and I think I'm supposed to be back here in Denver with my family and my friends and my community. And I'm just so proud that I get to launch my book here at Lighthouse. Uh, thank you to Lighthouse for hosting me. Thank you to Andrea. Thank you to Manuel for all your help setting this up. Thank you to the volunteers, Pablos. Thank you to my mom for being here and taking pictures with everybody. Um, thank you to my friends from my high school that showed up. Like, this is crazy. I think middle school friends are here. My dad, my papa, he's somewhere here, and all my sisters, I have, hi papa, thank you, um, and my five sisters, my brother is unfortunately in Michigan studying law, so he could not come, uh, but my godmother, she had to be carried down by four men in her wheelchair, so this is like, um, this is so exciting, and I'm going to read from the title, or from the opening story of Sabrina and Karina. It's called Sugar Babies, but before I read, I want to read a little bit from my acknowledgments, which I think is like, I've never seen someone read from their acknowledgments before, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> uh, to begin, I thank my ancestors who started their work as artists and storytellers, generations before I was born. This book may have taken a decade to write, but its path was set in motion by the undying spirit of my people who have resided in the Southwest since the beginning of this time. Our stories are not forgotten. So I'm going to skip around a little bit in Sugar Babies. Um, what you need to know about this story is it follows this eighth grader named Sierra. And Sierra lives in this fictional land that I created called Sewarita that's based on a town in southwestern Colorado. Um, the reason I created a fictional town is because my ancestors migrated north from southern Colorado in the 1920s and the 1930s. And I don't really have access to that land anymore. And I wanted to be respectful and have a lot of fictional leeway. Um, so a lot of my work is set in this fictional town. And I think um, the opening of Sugar Babies really gives you an idea of what my voice is like and also the kinds of things that I'm interested in as an artist. This story follows Sierra, and her mother has unfortunately abandoned her, but she comes back from time to time. And Sierra, at the same time that her mother has shown up again, has been forced to raise a sugar baby for her school project with her partner, Robbie Martinez. Um, I think some people who went to school with me remember raising our very own sugar babies. And that's where you're given a sack of sugar, and you have to cart this thing around as if it were an infant. 
So I'm going to read the opening, and then I'm going I'm to skip around to the end of the story. Sugar Babies. Though the Colorado soil was normally hard and cakey, it had snowed and then rained an unusual amount that spring. Some of the boys in my eighth grade class decided it was the perfect ground for playing army. They borrowed shovels and picks from their father's sheds, placing the tools on their bicycle handlebars and riding out to the western edge of our town, Sewarita, a place where the land with its silken fibers of swaying grass resembled a sleeping woman with her face pressed firmly to the pillow, a golden blonde by day, a raven-haired beauty by night. The first boy to hit bone was Robbie Martinez. He did so with the blunt edge of a rusted shovel. Out of the recently drenched earth, he lifted a piece of brittle, faded whiteness and tossed it downwind like it was nothing more than a scrap of paper. Look, he said, kneeling as if he was praying. Everybody, come look. All right, this is the middle of the story. Sierra has been raising her baby with Robbie. Xerophthalmia, Mrs. Sharpley said, is one of many childhood diseases your babies could get. It was the following Monday, the final week of sugar babies. Another assembly was being held in the gym. Two kids in front of me had swaddled their baby in a blanket, while others around us had glued on googly eyes and red yarn mouths. Robbie sat beside me with Miranda. She looked exceptionally fashionable. That morning, I had wrapped a quilted pillowcase around her like a moo-moo dress. Among other things, Mrs. Sharpley said, xerophthalmia is a vitamin A deficiency, which makes it so a person cannot produce tears. I leaned over to Robbie. I wish you had that disease. Then you'd stop whining about me drawing on Miranda. I had recently drawn crucifixes and anchors across her back. Tattoos, I called them. But Robbie said she looked like a bathroom wall. <laughs> She's a baby, he whispered. Babies don't need tattoos. Sugar, I said. She is a bag of sugar. <laughs> now think for a moment, Mrs. Sharpley continued, waving both arms into the air. Think of all the times you have cried. Sometimes they are happy, sometimes they are sad, but crying is natural. Take a moment to remember the last time you cried. The gymnasium went silent. Only the hiss of the fluorescent lights above us could be heard. Students hung their heads as if possessed by their deepest, most sorrowful memories. I waited for the other students to finish reminiscing about their dear old dead grandparents and some broken bones they may have had. Now, parents, Mrs. Sharpley continued, you can see that not being able to cry would be an awful condition. For your homework, we will each need to research a childhood disease. Tomorrow, we will draw diseases from a hat. Some babies will get a disease, but just like in life, some won't. It's the luck of the draw. Later that day, Robbie hurried after me as I walked home. His backpack seemed comically wider than he did. You have to take Miranda, he said. I have soccer tonight, Sierra. 
From the giant backpack, he scooped Miranda out, slowly handing her over. She was somehow heavier than usual. What the heck have you been feeding her? I asked. Robbie petted her belly. That was weird, huh? Mr. Sharpley asking us about crying. Yeah, she's a real wacko, I said, hoisting Miranda on my hip. The sky was endlessly blue with paper wisps of clouds. I caught myself tilting Miranda up to sea. So, when was it, Robbie? When was the last time you cried? That's sort of personal, he said. Robbie, Martinez, I'm your child's mother, and I deserve to know these things. <laughs> all right, all right. Robbie took a deep breath. After I found the bones, that night I woke up, and I thought I saw a skeleton woman at the foot of my bed. I didn't know who she was, but later my grandma, she told me it was Doña Sebastiana, the lady version of the Grim Reaper. You cried, I said, from a bad dream. No, Sierra, Robbie said. It was more than that. He scratched his head and his scalp sounded sandy. What about you, he asked. When's the last time you cried? I peered down the block at my little purple house. My mother's pickup wasn't in the driveway, and I figured she had gone to Rainbow Market for more pork chops. But for a moment, something in my chest ached. A gnawing worry that my mother was gone again, this time for good. I broke into a sprint and ran toward home. I don't cry, I called over my shoulder. Only little girls and babies do that. I have some new tattoo ideas, I said to Miranda, who sat on the kitchen table, stiffly leaning to the left in a column of sunlight. I was sifting through the drunk drawer looking for markers. I had opened every window, and for the first time in days, the house didn't smell of pork. It reeked with the richness of the mountains and desert, rain and sage and cedar pulled together as one. When I realized the drawer only had rubber bands and dead batteries, I said, don't worry, you little sack of cavities. I have some markers in my room. I crawled beneath my bed over the uncrushed carpet, surrounded by gobs of lint and bald hair. I was looking for a shoebox filled with art supplies, but I ended up fishing out a private property box, the place where I kept my movie ticket stubs, old diaries, and birthday cards from my mother. She made the cards herself, and I imagined her in some sunny apartment in downtown Denver. House plaits and cacti lined the windows while filtered city light fell upon her at the sofa, licking stamps and writing out her old address in Sewarita. Sitting on my floor, my legs spread and the birthday cards dumped all around me like confetti, I ran my fingers over their sharp edges and smooth ribbons. I came upon one for my 11th birthday, the first card my mother sent after she left me. I held the purple card in my palm and then opened the card as if it were the warm, beating heart of an animal. My mother had placed three marigolds inside and they nearly crumbled in my hands. To my baby Sierra, it read, today is your birthday and when you were born, I knew everything would change, that every day, would be your day, that nothing would ever be the same. I climbed into my bed where I nestled into Miranda. 
See this, I said. This is from my mom. I looked at her sad, sugar face, and for a split second, I imagined Miranda was a real infant, a baby who breathed and cried. I rolled her onto my lips and dryly kissed her forehead. I don't know if I'm very nice to you, I said. I then caught a glimpse of my mother standing in the doorway. She was leaning into the wall, limp and fragile. Her reddish-brown eyes were without makeup, and her hair was stacked in a sloppy pile on top of her head. You're good with her, she said. She isn't real, I said. My mother stepped toward me, moving gracefully in her skin. She sat on the front of the bed and with very straight posture and stiff arms. She seemed nervous, the way cats stiffen their backs before danger strikes. It's sort of strange they make you kids do this. You're only 13, but I can understand how they think it prepares you, I suppose. Not that having a sack of sugar for two weeks would prepare anyone for a real life. I pulled Miranda closer and wiggled my thumb over her quilted midsection. I'm not sure if anyone is prepared for raising a child, my mother said. It doesn't seem to be something we can practice before it actually happens. I shrugged and rolled Miranda onto my belly. Where did you go today, I asked my mother. My mother stared straight ahead, her eyes glassy, for a drive through the canyon. Would you believe it? I saw two hawks. They were playing in the wind. Hawks were common in Sewarita. We had an entire unit in sixth grade about them. They danced before mating, could dive 150 miles per hour. They stayed with one partner their entire lives. I was surprised that my mother paid them any attention. What kind of birds do you see in downtown Denver, I asked. Crows, said my mother. Just a bunch of crows. She paused, tracing Miranda's eyelashes with her long red nails. How much longer do you have her? A few more days, I said, rubbing Miranda's back slowly. I can't wait to get rid of this thing. She's so annoying. Imagine, my mother said, someday when it's a real baby, it will be much harder. That's the point. Miranda isn't real. If she was, I'd be a lot nicer to her, like Robbie is. He's better at taking care of her than I am. My mother folded her hands neatly in her lap. She kneaded her fingers back and forth and made a trickle of sadness move between us like a static shock. Can you believe that when you were born, I was only three years older than you are now? She forced a laugh and dropped her gaze to the carpet. I had to stop going to school, Sierra. Did you miss it, I asked. My mother sighed and considered my question for a long time. I didn't know I could miss school. I thought I was just sad. But I take classes now at a community college. You could go there someday. My mother went quiet. She pulled the rubber band from her head, allowing her hair to unravel around her shoulders. She looked gloriously dark and light at the same time. There was a shining glint in her brown eyes, and she looked younger. She looked happy. I bet you'll be an artist someday, Sierra. My mother pointed to the tattoos across Miranda's back. That's what I wanted to be. She smiled, and we both laughed. Here, she said, let me braid your hair. I can do a straight one that will last for a long time. I pulled away at first, but soon moved toward my mother. I was ashamed of myself, that I still wanted her close to me, even after everything she had done. 
I eventually rested my head in her chilly hands and tried to forget how bad my mother had hurt me. Her fingers wove through my hair like she was sewing a quilt. I nearly fell asleep in her arms as I held Miranda in my own. Lying there with my mother in the afternoon light of my bedroom, I imagined her far into the future, driving day and night, her little white truck sliding from mountain peak to valley, through snow and heat waves, windstorms and lightning, her headlights beaming bright and warm, shining into the town where I'll live someday when I'm finally a grown-up and my mother's black hair is silver and her face is well-lined. In the distance, I see her arriving, joylessly waving to me her last stop. When I woke up the next morning, my father was alone at the kitchen table, eating oatmeal and reading the newspaper. Part of me wanted to ask where my mother was, but I knew she was already headed north over the pass, back to that sunny apartment of hers in Denver. Even her chair was gone from the table. My father scooted a bowl of cereal toward me. He then smacked the paper with both hands. I'll be damned, he said. Those Indians on the ridge, they got some formal petition going. They're going to close up the dig site. His eyes met mine over the top of the paper. Sorry I didn't take you to see it, Sierra. There will be another one someday. I did see it, I said. Mama took me. My father swallowed hard and shook out the paper. It sounded like rain. You want some orange juice with your breakfast? I got the kind you like without pulp. No, Papa, I said. I'm not feeling too good. Would it be okay if I stayed home from school? He raised his white eyebrows, and they reflected the low sunlight pouring into the kitchen through the sheer curtains above the sink. If you feel that bad, then of course you can. I spent most of the day in bed with Miranda cupped in my arms. We listened to the radio perched on my windowsill. The country songs my mother liked filled the small bedroom, and every now and then I'd lean over with Miranda close to my chest and feel like crying. Then, at 3 o'clock, there was a quick knock on the door. Robbie stood on my stoop, covered in a mist of sweat around his temples and beneath his mouth. What are you doing here, I asked, and why are you out of breath? Did you skip or something? He wagged his head back and forth. It's awful, Sierra. It's just awful. I'm sure you're a wonderful skipper. Don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> no, not that, Robbie said. It's Miranda. He hunched over and took a huge breath. She's dead. Miranda can't die, moron. Robbie peered at me, a deep sadness in his glance. We pulled diseases out of the hat today. Most kids, they didn't get anything bad. They got like chicken pox. But Miranda, she got SIDS. And if you don't know what that is because you didn't do your homework, it means sudden infant death syndrome. I know what SIDS is, I said. Why are you supposed, what are we supposed to do now? Just throw her away? But we can't, Robbie whined. It's our baby. It's Miranda. I stared at him for a long while, counting how many times he blinked without tears rolling out of his eyes. Three. <laughs> then I said, I have an idea. Robbie and I parked our bikes near the edge of the hill overlooking the dig site. I had wrapped Miranda in a black pillowcase, and she resembled a baby nun. I pulled her from my handlebar basket and one last time arched her face to the heavens. There was a mass of gray clouds. They spread evenly over the land like a patchwork of fog. Look, I whispered, even the sky is sad for you. 
Robbie stood beside me at the border between the hill and the dig site. He reached out with a thin chicken wing of an arm and patted Miranda softly on the head. We stood at the edge of the hill for some time, listening to the grumbling moans of the clouds and the far-off crackling of thunder. I picked out a spot easy to aim for in the middle of the pit. Then, tipping back, I readied myself to launch Miranda above my head with both arms, but Robbie stopped me. You're going to throw Miranda in there? What else can we do, I asked. With those big, sad eyes, he looked into the dig site, and then he looked at me. I can kick her further. <laughs> You're going to kick our baby into her grave? <laughs> the wind carried my voice away from me as if it wasn't my own to begin with. I play soccer, Sierra. Taking her from my arms, Robbie delicately set Miranda on the edge of the hill, her limp body leaning mostly to the left. He backed up a few strides, and then he pushed himself forward with huge strides, his arms flying. When his tennis shoes made contact with Miranda, her body lifted from the earth as though she was nothing more than a helium balloon. She twirled in the air as her sugar insides spiraled out of her body from a hole Robbie's foot had torn in the bag. The sugar blew with the wind, sprinkling the dirt with bits of white. How pretty, I thought. And she landed with a thud. Thank you. Done. I don't know if he's going to be introduced by anybody, but I'll introduce you. Uh, <laughs> Stephen is the author of Potted Meat and Water and Power, and he's an incredibly talented Denver novelist. Oh, and I'm really honored that he's going to talk to me today. You got it? Wait a minute. There we go. Okay, there we go. All right. Hello, everyone. Can everybody hear me okay? Cool. All right. Yeah, I'm just, uh, I feel like there are a lot of people who also want to say something, so I won't run my mouth with too many questions. Just like ask you a few, and then anybody else can ask questions. All right. I sound too serious. No. Hello. I think I gave you guys like the wrong impression of my work. It's not always so wonderfully funny. But no. That was good. Thank I'm glad you read that story, though. Um, this is much darker. This this is true, yeah. But uh, I'm glad you read that story, and I did want to talk about that sentence. I wrote it on the board. Um, would, would you mind reading it again? Because yeah. I can't read it as well as you can. Yeah, I'm going to read but, it from the book. Okay, yeah. yeah. I didn't expect you to look up there. Um, they borrowed shovels and picks from their father's sheds, placing the tools on their bicycle handlebars and riding out to the western edge of our town, Sewarita a place where the land with its silken fibers of swaying grass resembled a sleeping woman with her face pressed firmly to the pillow, a golden blonde by day, a raven-haired beauty by night. Thank you. You're <laughs> welcome. I wanted to talk about that because it's one sentence, and it's, it's long and it spreads, but I, yeah. I like how it, um, <clears throat> it starts off in a small place, like in the sheds. Yeah, yeah. I don't need this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What am I doing? Yeah, it starts off in a small place, and then 
they get on their bikes and they ride to the western edge of town and then it opens up to this landscape. So it's something that happens really small and then sprawls throughout this sentence. But the intimacy isn't lost even when it moves into the mountains because you still describe the mountains as a woman lying on the pillow. So it kind of closes itself back in. And I think from what I was reading, like that seems how a lot of your stories function also. They always start very intimate and they seem to spread to some kind of distance, but the intimacy is never lost. Is, yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting. So um, Sugar Babies... Sugar Babies is one of the only stories that I ever wrote that came to me really quickly. I, um, I was at an art talk, and I can't even remember the artist or his art, um, which is like not a very good thing. But I was taking notes on his sculptures, and in the middle of my note-taking, um, I looked at this old notebook. I suddenly was writing notes for Sugar Babies. Like, the pen just started moving, and I was doing something else. And I ran home, kind of like the boys in the story, when they find, you know, they ride out to town and they're going to go look at this. They don't even know. They're just going to go play army. Um, I just ran home to my apartment in Laramie, and I just started furiously writing. And I wrote Sugar Babies in the span of about three days. And it was the first time that I allowed myself sort of to write in the folkloric voice that I had grown up with. Um, this is the voice of storytelling. This is the voice of my culture. This is the voice of my mother. Um, and so I think that intimacy that is, is larger than life, but it's still you're close and connected to it, I think that a lot of that comes from the oral tradition and in sitting around and listening to these, these moments that are very specific, but they're also universal. And I think that comes from myth and folklore. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it was a question about sentences. I had to. Yeah. I just yeah. love it. Um, well, no one ever talks to me about my, like, I didn't realize until I started reading it that that's all one sentence. Um, so thank you for pointing that out for me. I, <laughs> I was like, where's the period at? Oh, I was like, okay, it keeps going. <laughs> it works, though. Yeah. Like, yeah, it spreads itself out. And I wish you guys could see my drawing here, um, but you can't. I'll just have to explain it. Um, so it is like a, so I diagrammed a couple of Kali's stories because I was, like always amazed at the structure of them. I don't want to say plot, even I'll say plot, whatever. The structure, the arrangement. So um, yeah, I'm always amazed at the arrangement of the stories. And Kali and I did a panel one day um, at Arapahoe Community College and she was talking about appreciating having the power to plot her own memories and experiences. So the story that you read, which I'm glad, because I drew that one out, because I left the other ones at home, but um, you can see it here. Yeah, so, um, it's really so it cool. starts. It starts That's with how like I a right. Actually, yeah, I like yeah. plot in boxes like that. But anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it starts with like a flashback in the like recent past, with like a few days before the main storyline happens, and then about a third of the way through, there's the flashback about the mom leaving, and it goes a little further into history, and then there's a recent-ish flashback of the mom like coming back. Yeah. And then the main storyline goes on for a while, and then like the last third of the story, the mom flashes back to her childhood, which you read, you know, um, where she was talking about having the child at a young age and not being able to go to school, and then it goes back to the same story. And so, which I like this because a lot of stuff I read sometimes, all of the flashbacks go to the same time period, but you layered like the time things, and my God, I wish y'all could see this drawing, because it's really good, um, but 
Yeah, you layered the flashbacks, and that also made me think of something else with your stories, how they always start. Not always. <laughs> a lot of your stories start with some type of gain or loss. And, like, there was this finding of the bones, and then in Sabrina and Karina, there's a a death, and then in the following story, there's a flyer of a missing girl, so that's like a gain and a loss. They find the flyer, but it's of a loss. So yeah, I was thinking about how you layer time and just how you arrange these stories, but can you yeah. talk about that? Because I love it, so I'm yeah. just interested. Yeah, the, and I, um, I'm really interested in timelines and, and fiction, and I think the reason my stories, they, they kind of, they flip around in time, because the way I experience time is not very linear. Um, walking down the street in Denver, like looking at Lion's Lair across the street, for example, or something, within that moment, I'm looking at the bar, and I'm experiencing the bar, but also within my mind, there's every single moment I ever visited that bar. And I think my fiction really works in that way, it kind of follows the way that my mind works, is like, just because I'm in a place in the present doesn't mean that I am not carrying with me every experience that's tied to that place. And again, I think this comes, um, it comes from being from a very rooted people who've been somewhere for a very long time, and also the transference of memories. So in my stories, some of my characters, they don't even know who the memory belongs to in their family. And Sabrina and Karina, for example, um, Sabrina and Karina is a story about a makeup artist who's been asked to do her cousin's makeup for her funeral after she's been strangled to death by a boyfriend because they have to have an open casket in this deeply Catholic family and they wanna make sure she looks as beautiful as possible. In the, inside of that story, there's a flashback where the two, the two women, Sabrina and Karina, are little girls and they can't remember who had the first memory of a bee stinging one of them. They, they share the memory, essentially. They share the pain. And I think that's why I'm so interested in time loops. Um, and also, there's a lot of writers that, I, that do this kind of thing that are major influences on me. Edward P. Jones, for example, in his short stories, Alice Monroe in her short stories. Um, so it's just something that kind of just follows the framework of my mind. Thanks. Okay, my last question. <laughs> okay. I had a lot prepared, but I feel like a lot of other people want to ask questions too. Is that true? Okay, that's true. A few people shook their heads. <laughs> Okay, so this is kind of a little outside the book, but related to you as a person and, a, and an artist. So what I usually see, and I think a lot of people see it um, when, if you're a writer, is that um, non-white women writers, you know, in reviews or interviews and in general conversation, is that they're not given the full scope of being an author, meaning that people only focus on like the social content or your grit or how emotional it is without paying attention to your skills and techniques, which men are afforded that opportunity and a lot of white men are. So um, has this been an issue for you yet? And if it has, or I mean, if it will be moving forward, is there anything you could do about it or how would you respond to that? I don't know if it, there's anything we can do about it, yeah. but you may I don't know. know. There's a, I, you know. I think the thing I can do about it is just I'm trying to write at the highest level possible. You know, I am studying work. I am producing work that I think, at least for me, is like the height of my abilities. And I want to push that as far as possible. Um, 
And I want to, you know, I want to be considered as great as a white male writer, you know? I think that that's something that I should be allowed to be. <laughs> um, but yeah, I have run into this a lot. When I was first writing these, these stories and stories before it, um, I, was, I remember I was taking a creative writing class at Metro State, and a classmate of mine said that, you know, my stories are pretty good, but they, they really lean too heavily on my heritage. And um, I was so devastated by that, but I was also like, Psh, whatever, what's going to happen to you in life? I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think that saying that my work was leaning too heavily on my heritage was discrediting my entire world. You know, like, it's not my heritage, it's my reality. Um, so I think that, yeah, um, especially Latina writers, it's hard for us to get our books reviewed. It's hard for us to be taken seriously. And I'm hoping that I can change it just by trying to be a force. I'm trying to write as the most beautiful, challenging work that I can. And if it works, it works. Um, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. But I'm trying. I'm going to try. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'll I'll step down and I'll let people ask you questions. I mean, not I will let, but I'm saying my portion is over, and you all can ask well, I, questions. I'm I really step appreciate down. you asking oh. questions and <laughs> yeah. sitting up here with me. Thank yeah. you. Um, do you guys have any questions for me? There's no mics out there, but I can repeat questions. Yes. Sure. I, I mean, I don't know if I know the answer between what's different besides one is spoken and one is written. Um, and I think when you're writing literature, in order to make it, in order to show that the lineage comes from oral storytelling, you have to do a lot of sort of uh, manipulation of the reader. So the reader isn't aware of the fact that you're trying to bring forth this tradition. And a lot of the ways that I do it in my work is I read all my work aloud. I, I will change a, a word in a sentence if I don't think it sounds beautiful, if I don't think it's tonally what I'm looking for. Um, so I really try to pay attention to how my sentences sound. Um, another thing that's interesting, I think, about oral storytelling is it's, it's much more brief, usually, than a short story, because if I were to read this full short story, it'd probably be about 35 minutes, 40 minutes. And like, I don't care how fun your campfire is, no one's gonna sit there for 40 minutes and listen to your story. They're gonna sit there for about five minutes max, maybe 10. So I think it's about um, stretching, stretching the form, but also kind of what I, I look at my, um, even my novel that will be published next year is like this. I modulate a lot of my scenes. So they're kind of like I'm taking these little stories and I'm, I'm mapping them together and I'm sort of creating this tapestry of larger stories. Um, and I also, another thing that I do that combines the forms in, in a way is I add folk tales inside of my storytelling. So um, in Sabrina and Karina, for example, uh, one of the memories that they have is Sabrina comes home from her birthday. She's supposed to hang out with her cousin for her birthday party, and she never shows up. And when she does show up, she's, like, incredibly drunk and being just super disrespectful. And she, she's making fun of Karina, and she says, don't you remember that story about the devil at the dance? 
And when the devil danced with the girl, he burned her with his ho- he had hooved feet, and he burned her all over her body with his hands. That's an old story that I was told. And the fact that the characters are speaking that aloud to each other, I think it channels the oral storytelling. So I think there's a lot of ways you can do it, but um, what I would do is I just find the way that feels most true to you and start adding in those stories to your, your longer work. But thank you for that question. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yes, over here in the corner. No, I spent a lot of time there. Um, my great-grandmother, Esther, and my Auntie Lucy, they came, they came up to Denver when they were young women. And so I think I always had the awareness that that's where we came from. And that was our origin. And that's why I wanted to make sure that I didn't name a town. Because I know in the San Luis Valley, everyone's very specific about history. And it's something that everyone's really interested in. And I didn't want to be disrespectful in any way. But I also felt... When I, when I would travel and visit, I had this overwhelming sense of home and this overwhelming sense of like, this is, my, this is my land base. This is where I feel like I belong in a way that I've never experienced before. Um, I actually, I moved away for a long time and I lived in South Carolina, I lived in Key West, Florida, I lived in Wyoming. And when I came back, I got a, draw, a job in Durango and I had to drive through the valley to come back. And um, it was just such a momentous experience. And I remember I went hiking with my mom and this like hawk came down out of the sky and like flew past my shoulders. And my mother said, um, they're welcoming you home. And then because I didn't want to like look cheesy, I turned around and I cried, you know? <laughs> but now I'm telling you that I cried. So no, I'm not, I'm not from there, but I feel like that is my eternal land base. That's where my home is in my heart. So thank you for your question. They, they, are you, did you come up here or did you like, do you live in Denver now? Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, you have a question. Yeah. You are missing out when you don't have an instructor that comes from your culture that doesn't come from your background because there's a lot of things that we write about that are culturally coded that, you know, somebody who's from a different, a dominant perspective is not going to be able to see. So the way that I got through this is I started looking up workshops for writers of color and one that really kind of pushed me to have mentors that were people of color was Vona, Voices of Our Nation. Arts Foundation. Um, Steven in town actually has a reading series for writers of color. 
um, and does a lot. Stephen's very active in our community. Um, but yeah, you can learn. I mean, you can learn from writers of all walks of life. But I think you know to find that kind of connection is going to be really special and important. Um, take some of my classes. You know, when I teach, um, I, I will work with you. Um, but also, um, Lighthouse now has um, a writers of color group that is meeting once a month. I think it's like the first Friday or something, or the third Friday. I was close. <laughs> um, not really. If you would have shown up, no one be here. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Lighthouse, and there's also, I'm going to be teaching at a retreat for writers of color um, in Estes Park through Lighthouse, and that'll be at the end of August, July. <laughs> okay, okay. And I, yeah, just, you know, talk to me and I'll help you get clued into the different, um, the different facets of the community. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes, over here. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely um, my, my father, Papa, is a white man. He's from Omaha, Nebraska. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, that's definitely something that it, when I was younger, I really worried about. And that, you know, that was like even I remember in middle school, like girls would be like, you don't even speak Spanish. Like, you can't be part of this group. And I was like, but there's all these other Chicanas over here on this other table that don't speak Spanish either. So um, I think w w what I realized about it is like, I'm the, I'm the most true version of myself. I am what I am. And I, I, had to I had to let go of feeling that I wasn't one thing or another enough. I was never white enough. I was never brown enough. I always was in this in-between space. And I think that's, honestly, that is the Latinx experience in some ways. You always are going to be a blending of different cultures where a lot of us are mestizos. We have a lot of different things inside of us. So I, for my work... I finally just got to the point where I said, I love myself, I love what I am, and I'm going to write the most true version of who I am. And that's really when people started identifying with my work. So that's my, my suggestion. Okay, I'm going to take like two more questions because it's really hot. So, um, yes, over here. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Um, so I write in two different modes. Sometimes for my short stories, I just sit down and I just let the story come out the way it is. And I usually do that like in a, a, a couple days or like a couple week burst. For my novel, I have to be much more patient with myself and I have to have word quotas and I have to have structures that I build before. Um, so my suggestion, if you're just getting a handle on structure, is to look at some work that you already have written I'm, if you have a short story or something you've already written, and analyze the structure that you see already happening. And then you can, you can either you can change that structure or you can enhance that structure. Another um, pointer I have for this is 
my, my fiction really went to a new level when I started diagramming other people's work. So I would go through and I'd look at some of my fa fa favorite short story writers. Um, at the time, I was super obsessed with like Richard Ford. Um, and I would look at, I would put like a check mark for things that are happening in the present, like a negative mark for things that are happening in the past. And then I actually started drawing graphs. Um, so I think when you have all these pieces together, you're not going to be able to organize them before you know what you have. So just kind of start identifying what you have on the page and look and see what other writers are doing. Um, if you ever try to diagram an Alice Moreau story, it's like fascinating. So um, there's some people that like their stories are very straightforward and some that are like very convoluted and they have time loops and things like that. But my advice is just start looking at the works that you really love, even full novels, and just start analyzing those and being able to articulate that structure will strengthen your structure. Okay, one more. Over here, yeah. <laughs> no, I was just like, one day I was like in bed at like four in the morning with a pencil, and I was like, I'm going to mark up Drown by Juno Diaz. No one's going to stop me. Because um, I was always taught, like, don't write in your books, you know, and I, 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 I sold books for years and years at Westside Books. I think I saw Lois here, my old boss. Woo! Um, but I was always afraid to mark up books. So I actually, yeah, my, I mark up books now. So, um, yeah, but my, so my advice is I would create a key for yourself. Like I was saying that, like, I just started putting an asterisk next to something that was present tense. And then I would put a plus um, next to something that was um, a jump into the future and the negative sign if it was a flashback. And then I also started looking at when certain characters enter and when certain characters exit and looking at the way that you enter scene. And another, another big pointer I have for this is looking at some of the great TV shows. The Wire really helped me. Breaking Bad really helped me. Um, I mean, TV writers really know how to plot and really know how to structure things. So... Thank you all for coming to my book launch. Thank you. For more information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop, visit www.lighthousewriters.org.